Well, the doctrine of the incarnation is one of Christianity's most essential beliefs. It's a big part of what makes Christianity Christianity as opposed to some other belief system. But in spite of its ancient uh, importance, it's not a belief that we've spent a lot of time talking about or thinking about in the Protestant West for the last several hundred years. I think this is because uh, we've lived in a world that assumed Christianity. And when you assume Christianity, it's easy to take for granted the things that we all have in common. It's easy not to think about them, but instead to have all of our focus on the things that divide us, the things that Christians disagree about. And so we spend most of our time working on and thinking about the kinds of things that separate one denomination of Christians from another, and eventually unintentionally end up building our identities around those things. It's not that those things aren't important, uh, the meaning of the sacraments or how you organize church leadership. Those, those kinds of things are important. The issue is that if those secondary things become primary things, uh, they're, they're going to run off the rails. If they're not grounded in our most foundational and central beliefs, uh, then, then we'll be wrong about those too. So it's essential that we come back and are very strong on the core, the most essential things in our faith. The doctrine of the Incarnation is one of those. So we're going to talk about it today, and the passages of Scripture that we just heard read are going to give us a great opportunity to do that. But before we dive in, let's do a quick review on what the doctrine of the Incarnation actually is all about. So what does it teach? What does it say? Well, the doctrine of the Incarnation tells us that in Jesus, God became a human being while still remaining God. Let's hear that again. It teaches us that in Jesus, God became a human being while still remaining God. That's a lot to wrap your head around. That's kind of hard to comprehend. Another way of saying it is to say that Jesus is 100% God and 100% human at the same time. 100% both simultaneously. Now, in the ancient world, they had this category. They had an imagination for people who were a mix of God and human, demigods like Hercules and Achilles, um, part one, part the other mixed together. Basically, this was a human being with superpowers. But the church said, that's not what's going on with Jesus. That's not who he is. That's not what he is. He's 100% God and 100% human at the same time. How does that mean? How does that work? I don't know. It's confusing. It's mysterious. It's not the kind of thing that we would have made up ourselves. <laughs> we don't believe it because it immediately makes sense to us. And we believe it because it's how Jesus was revealed to us. It's what the apostles taught. It's what scripture says. It's what the church has believed through its whole history. And we've seen the power of this truth to transform lives in the world. But it's still hard to wrap your head around. And because of that, Through the whole history of the church, there's always been a tendency to make one of two opposite errors, and that is to either uh, to tend to downplay either Jesus's humanity or to downplay his divinity. There's always a tendency to do one or the other. Now, downplaying Jesus's divinity is something that we are, I think, alert to. It's something we're concerned about that we don't want to do. We're very, at a place like St. Andrew, serious about remembering that Jesus is fully God. And we know that there are lots of people out there that might say that Jesus was just a wonderful human, maybe even the best human, maybe even there really is a God and Jesus is God's favorite human. But Jesus isn't God. We would say, no, that's not right, that's not Christianity, it's something else. His deity, Christ's deity, is essential to who we are, to what we believe, to how we live. He's got to be God. But the opposite error is one that we are not nearly so careful about or as thoughtful about. 
this tendency to downplay Jesus' humanity. This is a mistake we're actually quite prone to, one that we don't even know that we're making a lot of the time, in part, I think, because we want to defend Jesus' deity, which is right and good. We must do that, but not without also holding up his humanity. It's not a, a sliding bar that we're moving back and forth. It's both at the same time. Um, our tendency, though, I think, thinking about Jesus' power and his knowledge, these things coming from God, uh, it, it's easy to imagine that Jesus was just God pretending to be human, that his humanity was a kind of pantomime, just a show, because it's hard for us to imagine that there was any real risk or struggle in any of the things that Jesus was doing. It's very hard for us to imagine Jesus feeling any real fear or doubt or anger or disappointment or loss or any of the thousand things that are universal human experiences, things that we all live and walk through. But our passage today, and just one sentence from our passage today, I think manages to show us Jesus as fully human and fully God at the same time in a really remarkable way. It's really cool. I'm excited to show it to you. It doesn't just explain it to us, though. It doesn't lay out the doctrine as an idea. It shows us. The words that I have in mind here are Jesus' heartbreaking words from the cross when he cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is one of the few places in Scripture where we hear Jesus' words as he spoke them, untranslated. They had to be unforgettable for those who heard them that day, for his friends and his family, and so they've been passed down to us. They echo through the years of the church with his agony. Why does Jesus say this? What does he mean? I think if we're honest, we may be tempted when we're reading through Scripture to skip over these words or to run past them really quickly. Because if we slow down, it seems like something has gone horribly wrong. It seems like Jesus has begun to doubt, like he's confused, like he's disappointed, like things are not working out the way that he planned. And we're afraid that if we linger here too long, that we may also find ourselves doubting. Does Jesus really not know what's going on? Is he really scared and confused? How can God be scared or confused? No, Jesus' humanity shocks us here. But I believe this is precisely part of the reason that it's included in Scripture. We must affirm that Jesus is not just pretending to be human, and we see that here. His suffering is very real. In this moment, he is betrayed and alone, dying in a cursed death. It would be a, a mistake, a serious mistake, to take anything away from the honest, literal suffering of his cry. Jesus said these words, and the gospel writers were not in, afraid to include them. Jesus means what he's saying here. Because Jesus was and is fully human. He experienced the full gamut of human emotions. He felt anger and grief and loneliness and despair, and fear. And that may sound shocking to you. It may sound shocking, because you would say, Preacher, Jesus was without sin. And I would say, that's exactly right. And, and experiencing a negative emotion is not a sin. We cannot will our feelings away. We cannot choose our emotions. And maybe you need to hear this today, friends. That means that there's no shame in feeling negative emotions for you either. There is only the question of what we do with them when they rise up in us. 
What do we do with them? Do we feed them? Do we fall in love with them? Do we cultivate them and nurture them? Do we hide from them? Do we bury them? Do we try to drown them in some form of avoidance? But Jesus shows us the way here. He shows us what to do with our darkest feelings, even from the cross. And we're going to dig into this further as we go into the scripture. But just in general, what we're going to see, what we're going to see Jesus do, his first step is to turn with total honesty to the Father. He is honest with the Father. He remembers God's salvation in the past. He calls out for help, and he continues. He perseveres in faith even in the midst of his hardship. So it's very important that we see Jesus responding this way, being honest with God, remembering his help in the past, calling out for help, help and continuing in faith. But it, it matters so much precisely because that he's experiencing it in the same way that we would. Jesus' inner pain on the cross was just as real as his physical pain. His heart was pierced just as surely as his hands and his feet. Jesus was and is human. And this is good news for us because it means that we can be confident that he understands that he has entered into every part to the deepest depths of our need, our fear, our brokenness, our hurt. Friends, whatever you have suffered, whatever you're suffering, Wherever you feel overwhelmed, you're not alone. You have a high priest who understands. Even, he even understands your doubts. And by itself, this might not be good news that Jesus understands, but it's good news because Jesus did not just suffer with us. He also overcame, overcame in a way that no one else could. Because while he is 100% human, he is also truly and fully God. And Jesus' words, as painful as they are here, show us his divinity just as clearly as they show us his humanity. It's really amazing to me. Because Jesus didn't pull these words out of thin air. They are an honest expression of his agony. They're never less than that, but they are also more. Because when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting the first line of Psalm 22. He chose his words carefully. In the Jewish tradition, it was understood that the first line of a phrase of Scripture contained the whole. In other words, if you say the first words, you mean all of it. So if I said to you, I love Amazing Grace, you understand that I don't mean the words Amazing Grace. I mean that song and all the words in it, and you know the words. So I've communicated to you that I love everything that's in that song. The two words mean the whole. Jesus' hearers would have understood this. They were familiar with Psalm 22. They got the reference. Um, so uh, we, we can ask the question, what did he want to communicate them? What was he trying to say? And we're probably not nearly as, as familiar with Psalm 22 as they were. Uh, so we're going to dig into it a little bit here. Psalm 22 was originally written by David at a moment when he was stuck in a terrible, horrible situation. We don't know which one it was. There are lots to choose from in the history of his life. Uh, but we know things had gone very, very bad, and he was hopeless. But he reaches out to God, he receives deliverance, and he gets his kingdom back. That's what happens in the psalm. So these are David's words, but they're not just David's words. All of the psalms, this one included, were taken up by Israel, and they became Israel's prayer book. Uh, the psalms taught Israel how to pray. They gave words to their prayer, so that when the people of Israel were in any particular situation, there was always a psalm that gave words to that situation. And Psalm 22 
gave words to Israel in their moments of greatest hopelessness, of deepest despair. It gave them a way to express that hopelessness to God while also calling them back into hope. So these were David's words, but they were also Israel's words. And as such, um, we, we heard part of the, the Esther story here a second ago. Uh, they actually, Psalm 22 became really associated with the celebration of Purim, which is remembering when God saved all of Israel when Esther was queen. It looked like there was going to be a genocide and everyone was going to die, but God brings this incredible deliverance and Esther's in the middle of it and she has to be faithful even though she thinks she's going to die. So it's this picture of, of, of calling out to God in despair and finding beyond hope an incredible victory. So there's this great history. But when Jesus speak these words, speaks these words, when he applies them to himself, he's not just quoting them. They find, these words find their fullest, most complete meaning in, on, on his lips. See, when David said these things, he was speaking poetically, hyperbolically. It's like if I said, um, I would swim the widest river and climb the highest mountain for love. I don't mean that I'm planning a trek to Everest. I'm just saying with colorful language, I feel very strongly. That, that's how David's operating. He's telling the truth, but he's using poetic language to do it. But when these words come from Jesus, when they're applied to Jesus, David's words take on literal meaning. It's as though David, being a prophet, was watching and narrating Jesus' situation from a thousand years in advance, because that's how much time separates them. So what does Psalm 22 say? Let's dig in. You've got it in your bulletin. You've probably got a Bible in front of you. I would encourage you to follow along. I'm not going to go word for word, but we're going to move through it. I want to show you some things here. What does Psalm 22 say? Starting in verse 1. Well, it begins clearly with total despair, but it doesn't stay there. You move past verses 1 and 2 into 3 and 5, and it quickly turns. The psalmist starts to remember the ways that God has saved his people in the past when everything looked like it was, when it felt like they were abandoned, when it seemed like things had gone too far and too wrong. He doesn't give an example, but you could imagine him thinking of Israel being enslaved in Egypt for 400 years and then suddenly being delivered, or being at the brink of the Red Sea with Pharaoh's armies charging down at them, and then the, the, the sea being opened. This place of going from hopeless despair to deliverance. Okay? He remembers, this has happened before, maybe it could happen to me too. So there's hope, but then he turns to darkness again in verse 6. He turns back to despair because he goes further into describing the unique, terrible specifics of his situation. We see just how bad things are. So can this really be true for me, God? I know you've done this before, but I don't, I don't know about this time. And this, as he describes the situation, uh, the prophetic nature of the psalm really starts to stand out. So verse 7, David, the psalmist says, All who see me mock me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Well, when we go to uh, Matthew's gospel, obviously all four gospels report the crucifixion and they give us different details. But Matthew uses, the, he literally quotes Psalm 22 to tell us what's going on. When he describes uh, these leaders standing around and mocking Jesus, he says, they wag their heads at him. And they use the words, let God deliver him now if he desires him. So they're saying exactly the same things to Jesus that David was imagining his accusers saying to him. You get to verse 9. The psalmist says, On you as I cast from my birth, from my mother's womb you have been my God. Well, David knows that he was chosen, and, and so that's true for him in a sense, but uh, this is true for Jesus in a literal way, that it could be for no one else, the one conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin. 
Jump down to verse 14. David says, I'm poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My heart's like wax melted within my breast. Again, he speaks poetically to, to communicate how much he's hurting. But Jesus, crucified, his, his shoulders are literally pulled out of socket. His bones are, it's, he's in this incredibly awkward position with his joints all out of sorts and askew. In John 19, we're told that the soldier came and pierced Jesus' side with a spear and that at once out came blood and water. And so again, David's poetry, my heart's like wax melted within my breast, I'm poured out like water, becomes a literal description of Jesus' situation. David said, my strength's dried up like a pot shard. My tongue sticks to my jaws. Jesus cannot speak because in his agony, um, his tongue's literally sticking to his jaws. He needs his mouth to be moistened to utter his final words. And then if these similarities are not enough, if we haven't been able to see the connection, if we haven't been able to see what Jesus is showing us, now we can't miss it. When the psalmist says in verse 16, they have pierced my hands and feet. Seems like a strange thing for David to say, but we look to the cross and we cannot miss Jesus crucified. And it continues to be completely on the nose. David says, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. And Mark, the evangelist in his gospel, again, literally quotes Psalm 22 without us realizing that he's doing it to describe the Roman soldiers dividing up Jesus's clothes among them. So anyone listening that day, anyone who knew the psalm and any the Jewish people would, anyone who had ears to hear, who wanted to pay attention, they had to be shocked as they saw the psalm playing out before their eyes, as Jesus called their attention to it. So when you read Jesus' words in the context of Psalm 22, it's clear that what is happening here is not an accident, that it's something foreseen by God and by Jesus, ordained by God for a thousand years, and if for a thousand years, then also certainly from the foundation of the world. So there's more going on, and the psalm's going to tell us more about why. It's going to give us more context, more reason. In verses 19 through 21, the psalmist comes out of this dark place telling us how bad things are and cries for help to God again. But then there's this sudden turn. In the second half of 21, it happens so suddenly that if you're reading quickly, you don't even notice that it's happened, that he goes from asking for help to saying that help has already come. He says that he has been rescued. It's already happened. He's no longer asking. The rescue has occurred. And he starts praising God and telling other people to praise God because he's been saved. And then, in verse 27, he looks even further into the future with with an even greater prophecy. And he says that the results of God saving the king from all these impossible troubles will be all nations coming to God. God ruling over all nations. Posterity itself, the future serving him because he has done it. Because he has saved the king. Now this is a lot more than David could say about himself. Whatever situation it was, his salvation didn't lead to the transformation of, of, of all time and history and all people. He knew that God had promised him something and he was looking forward to that through his descendants. But in Jesus, this is exactly and literally what's happening as he hangs on the cross. Jesus' cry of pain and agony was real. But through Psalm 22, it also contains the clarity that God is at work. In his agony, we see Jesus, with these words, trusting that God would and indeed already had acted to rescue, not by taking him off the cross, but by delivering the whole world through his death. death. This wasn't a rescue just for him, but through him for 
the whole world. David was delivered from death and given a kingdom. Jesus died, but he was delivered. He was raised from death and given an eternal, all-encompassing kingdom. So Jesus' wisdom, even in his agony, is incredible to me here. He chooses these few words, this handful of words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he manages to show his real humanity, his vulnerability, his pain. But at the same time, he shows us his wisdom, and he reveals himself to us in a position that only belongs to God, ruling and reigning over all nations. It's beautiful. It's incredible. In many ways, this cry is an invitation. Again, he's telling the truth about how he's doing, but he's also speaking to listeners around him and throughout time and space. Because it was an invitation to those lions and, and, and bulls and dogs who were taunting him and torturing him. It's an invitation to them to see, finally, to turn and recognize who he is and what's going on, if they, if, they, if they would. It's also an invitation to his followers who are standing further back, but grieving with broken hearts, unable to believe how things have turned out so badly that their Lord is being tortured to death. But now they've heard these words, and they make the connection. We know that they do because it's in Scripture. <laughs> That they, so they can fully, they can go back to Psalm 22 and understand more about what's happening. And once he's resurrected, this passage is exactly the kind of thing that we know Jesus must have shown the disciples on the road to Emmaus when he was revealing how all Scripture was telling his story. And so even for us far off who believe this passage and this cry of dereliction is an incredible testimony to many things, to the power of God's Word, how it really is all a story about Jesus, that it's, his Word can be trusted, But most of all, I think it's a testimony to who Jesus actually is. In these words, we see that he's not just a failed human revolutionary uh, who was too idealistic and got himself killed. Neither is he God just pretending to be vulnerable uh, to make us feel better in some way. No, Jesus is fully God and fully human. He really knows us. He has really suffered. He's really entered into our vulnerability, but he also really has the power to save. And friends, this means that Jesus, that the cross isn't just Jesus temporarily stepping back from being God. He's not stepping back from being God. It is the fullest revelation of God's love for us. This is the moment where we actually see God the most clearly. Death took Jesus, human and alone, But Jesus remained God, and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit cannot be separated. Jesus wouldn't let his humanity go, and Father and Spirit would not let Jesus go. So, God became human, and he died. And sin and death were shattered in the process. How could they not be? Death couldn't hold them. In light of this good news, friends, how should we live? How should we live? I know that many of you are hurting Many of you are carrying heavy things this morning, grief from the past or or, or current things that are happening. If we only look at this as Psalm 22 in its original Old Testament context, we see that God has given us, through David, language and a way to respond in our despair. He's invited us to come to him. The first step is always being honest with God, to tell him the truth about how we're doing but it also invites us to remember how he has worked to save in the past and to trust him in spite of the darkness that surrounds us. 
David looked to God, he remembered and he had hope, and he persevered in that hope. He turned towards that hope. But how much more powerful, how much more true is our hope, is the invitation to hope now for us that we have seen Jesus do what he did and be who he is. We have a much greater invitation to hope, even in the darkest circumstance. Not because we have all the answers, but because we know who our hope is in this Jesus, this King who suffers and dies for our sake, the one who has gone into the darkest places and who has overcome. So friends, here's the invitation today. In a minute, we're going to come to the altar. We're going to come to meet with Christ. He's always with you, but this is a way that we put our bodies into it, that we come and we kneel before him. And as you come, I invite you, Jesus, more importantly, invites you to bring your own cry of dereliction. I'm not saying that you need to come up here and yell something in Aramaic, um, but, but you're invited to come and bring your darkest feelings, the places where there is despair hidden away inside you, the place where shame threatens to overwhelm you, the place where grief or doubt have a hold. Come and bring those things. Be honest with God. You don't have to hide them. And Jesus will meet you there. And he will meet you and invite you to remember. As you receive the bread and the wine, you receive his body and his blood. And it is the most visceral reminder because it is his actual presence. That he loves you this much. That he died for you. That his body is broken for you. That he has suffered with you. And that he has won the victory for you. And so come Bring him, whatever it is, cry out to him in your heart. Remember his faithfulness. And as you do, may hope rise in you as you begin to entrust yourself to him, not because you have all the answers, not because everything's resolved today, but because you know the one who is himself the way. The servant king, son of God, son of man, lion and lamb, deity incarnate, Jesus, fully God, and fully human. Amen. Jesus, uh, these are not just words to preach, but they are my prayer for myself and for your people. Give us, by the power of your Holy Spirit, the grace not to hide from the darkness inside of us. Let us take the step of being honest with ourselves and with you, with whatever's in there. Let us bring it to you. Stir in our hearts to remember your goodness, especially your goodness on the cross. And give us the courage, as you did on the cross, Jesus, to turn and be faithful, to continue to walk towards you, even as our darkness persists, with the courage to believe, Jesus, that you have won the victory and that you are with us. We pray it in your name, our King. Amen.